Hey everyone, Nick here. Before we get to the episode, I'm recording a second introduction because it turns out I had some microphone issues that we weren't able to identify until we heard the recording. Did the best we could in post and still wanted to get the episode out there, um, but do apologize for the technical issues. I did order a new microphone, which I'm recording this on, and hopefully it sounds great, and episode 12 will sound great as well. Uh, With that, back to the regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Prod Squad podcast. It is episode 11. Nick Cook here, joined, as always, by Brendan Colleton. Brendan, how's it going? Good, good. I feel like episodes 1 through 10 were like season 1, and we're like kicking off off a new season here, effectively, uh, of the Prod Squad. No pressure. I I will (laughs) say, I... I, uh, when someone's asked about the podcast or says, oh, you know, I'd love to check it out. I do tell it to start at the end of the season in, in your <laughs> analogy work backwards. I like to think we really, you know, found our stride towards the, the closer to the 10th episode than the first, I think, you know, you found your mic at least. <laughs> yeah, I agree. The microphone certainly improved throughout. I think we uh, agree. I think we got to try a couple different things that worked well for, for both product manager audience and non-product manager audience. But, uh, Hopefully, hopefully, you know, only only up from here. For sure. Uh, and another thing we carried over from season one, <laughs> although I don't <laughs> think this is actually a season transition, we'll go with that analogy, is the retro, um, where we kind of look back at uh, what's been going on since we chatted last on the podcast. Um, so I'll kind of kick us off today with the retro. I themed it the good, the bad, the ugly, just because there was like three things that I want to talk about. It kind of worked that way. Um, I'll start with the actually the ugly and work in ascending <laughs> order, I guess. Um, so I took my uh, insurance domain now my investigation to another level, where I came back pretty soon after we had recorded the last podcast. Came back from a weekend away, and someone had hit my car because <laughs> it was parked in the street. So I had to open up my second insurance claim <laughs> within a month. <laughs> Um, to get that addressed, that was a lot simpler than a property claim. (laughs) Let me tell you about that. I sent a few photos in and they sent someone out the next day. And I think the day after that, or two days after that, I had money in my bank account for the fix. So that was pretty, I had a pretty good experience there. So the experience wasn't the ugly. It was more that it happened, but now I have experience an auto and a property claim. So um, hopefully I don't have to experience any more claims. Yeah, <laughs> Although well, I, I guess it would be better than I feel job. like the next thing is probably like a health insurance claim. Like hopefully, <laughs> yeah. hopefully you don't hit the trifecta here in the last couple of months. Yeah, yeah. As long as they stay on the property side of things, <laughs> the, the you know, materialistic side, I guess it's, it's okay. Um, but uh, a bummer, nothing too terrible though. Uh, mostly just cosmetic, so uh, something I can live with, but uh, was was unfortunate. Um, all right, now moving up the bad. This is something that's really irked me. I don't know if you noticed this, Brendan, but Google Maps has, I don't know if they've always done this, but they sure do it now, where they just suggest terrible routes. 
that oh. I don't know why they pop up. Uh, sorry, not the route they give you, but you'll be driving, right? You'll 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 you know click or like start whatever. Routes. Yeah, it's like alternative route. This route is seven more dollars in tolls and twenty two minutes longer. And it's just like, what is the purpose of show? Like, when am I opting into that route? I was really trying to think about like why. Like, why does that exist? Like, why is that important for them to to show me this clearly terrible route? Not even similar. You what know? if What if it's because it makes you feel better about the route that they have to give mm. you? And like, if that route is like a ton of traffic, and like, oh, can we swear on this podcast? I don't know. If there's no. sort of, explicit if tag, <laughs> season two, we're amping it up. Uh, <laughs> if there's like a uh, if there's like a ton of traffic on the route that you're on, right? Like the reason you're looking at alternatives usually is because the route you're on, you don't you don't have faith in it or you don't have full trust in mm, it. And mm. if it shows you all those other garbage routes, Ooh. it's like, hey, you know what? Like this isn't so bad. Otherwise, I'd be spending seven more dollars and going 22 minutes longer. You know, I'll sit in this traffic. Uh, maybe that's it. Maybe it's you know, it's kind of the the power of the comparison. Wow, I never thought about that. It's like making me feel like, wow, Google, look at how good Google is. <laughs> look at all the time they saved me. That's an interesting thought. The The only one I could come up with was, I feel like if it deviates me from a route that I'm used to taking, so I've been driving into the city, um, I, I guess I didn't share this either, kind of now displaced from the water damage so work's being done so we're living outside the city temporarily and so I've been driving in on occasion to go to the office and sometimes it'll take me a different route because like traffic built up but it will still show me like hey if you kept going on the highway it was an extra 15 so that was I guess that's kind of similar yeah so maybe to what you're saying there where it's like yeah maybe those other routes you... like sometimes are useful and yeah showing you like hey this route sometimes it's okay but today it's it's terrible so it's only terrible in the instance that you're looking at it but like, mm. it could sometimes be maybe a preferred approach i like that okay i think maybe we got there on this it's like it's a, a reasonable the route. around <laughs> yeah a reasonable route i had like there has to be an explanation people at google aren't aren't dumb from what i've heard yeah you know, i've never worked there um but it, it had always thrown me off so i was trying to try i was trying to figure it out all right, so take us to the good. Stuff. What's the good? Check it. All right, the good. Uh, so this is something that is a pretty mundane, but I like to, you know, I think as product folks, we don't just focus, or maybe we, sometimes we focus too much on just like software, but like good product design exists in everyday things, right? And we recently bought a Brita filter, and it's a new one that I'd never used before. So this may be old news for people <laughs> up to speed on Brita water pitchers or whatever, you know. And what always used to annoy me uh, is when you had the Brita and you had to fill it up, right? You'd, you'd start filling it and then it would have to go through the filter to fill the pitcher up, right? So you're sitting there kind of filling it, waiting a little bit, filling it, waiting, right? This new pitcher, they flipped it. So you just fill the pitcher up immediately and then when you pour it, it goes through the filter. And so it takes longer to pour. But what they've really done is instead of like forcing all the obnoxious waiting into this one period of filling, which was like the, the most obvious, you know, kind of like you would just see, see all the time investment you had to put in at this one point. It's now like a slight delay i'm going to use like almost software words now right but like the the buffering's happening 
incrementally, not all at once, to put oh. it in more like a technical term. Do you get what I'm trying to say? I do. How much longer does it take to pour compared to like a regular pour? Like if I'm just going to go pour from a full Brita, you know, it's mm. like a couple seconds or it's not very long. How long does it take now that it's filtering on pour? I'll go uh, total guess. I'll go 50% more all right 50 percent more i think i think 50 percent more i could live with if it was if it yeah. was like two to three x i'm pretty sure that totally. would just make me hate the brita because now i can never use the brita immediately yeah. like it's always slowing me down as opposed to mm -hmm. like okay it's gonna slow me down now but like i feel the brita in the morning like when i'm doing the, like taking the stuff out of the dishwasher so i can like get it done then and then it's you know pretty good for the day uh and so if i can group it like that i don't think i mind and if I always have to experience the slow, I think that would frustrate me, but I do get what you're saying. Like if they can get it yeah. to the point where it's like not so bad, and I'm sure that'll improve it over time, then I'm, yeah. I'm fully on board with the the filter on pour. Yeah, it was, it was just one of those things where I was like, oh wow, you, you, I bet the net time spent like getting water into and out of the Brita is the same, but just how you've abstracted it in this instance <laughs> made me feel better about it, which is so silly, but I don't know why it, uh, it stuck out to me. So, all right, Brendan, that's my retro, the good, the bad, the ugly. What's been going on with you? Yeah. So my, mine, I think is just ugly. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> I'm take, the ugly, the uh, ugly, the ugly. Yeah. Yeah. Going, going back to like, uh, a couple episodes ago, we had Marion, right. When your whole, when your mm -hmm. whole issue started with, uh, with your insurance claim and your house being underwater. Um, mm -hmm. and we had Marion to talk about like the hardware side of being a, a PM, uh, right. The, the people coming up with, um, like the hardware products and especially the hardware products that have to like interface with software and it, I've been thinking a little bit uh, about some of that challenge because I have, I think there's just been a ton of instances that I started noticing where people aren't thinking about the hardware side when they're like addressing these challenges where there's a software potential solution, but the hardware is just not there yet. So like the example that actually made me think about this is also home related. And I think you can even relate to this because you had some trouble, I believe, installing a Nest thermostat once mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where nest you know one of the big advertisements is that like you don't need a wire uh running to power it you don't need a they call it a common wire is what they used to actually power the nest um it advertises being able to sort of pull a little bit of power from basically the like the control unit of your air conditioner or your heater um in order to power it and mm -hmm. it's it's like they don't make a big deal out of it at all. They basically say, don't worry about it. You can use it as any thermostat. Well, like I recently had some issues with our AC unit and we had people out here to install it. And apparently like none of the manufacturers of these like HVAC units ever considered in their lifetime, like, or ever considered like in the design of their products that somebody was going to be like stealing the tiny, tiny bit of power that goes through mm -hmm. these like control units. And like if you search the internet, it's full of people complaining about Nest thermostats, like basically making their AC or their heat do like super crazy behavior because it's stealing all the power that's designed to like let the AC know when to turn on and when to turn off. And like, well, this is like a really, I think, you know, not particularly critical uh, challenge. I do think we actually like see this pattern in much more dangerous ways. Um, like I think 5G is an example of this where like 
you know, 5G, it's just the next thing that's going to make your phone faster. Uh, but, you know, the, the mobile uh, companies go ahead and implement it. And then all of a sudden, like, it's this huge thing because airports are worried about it, like interfering with engine and braking systems. And like the FAA is like super concerned about it because like your plane hardware, which has been around for decades, uh, like isn't prepared to handle this new tech. And then the other example that I thought of, which is much more nefarious, was uh, I was watching the New York Times documentary on Tesla, which I highly recommend if anybody hasn't seen it. And Tesla basically decided, like, instead of using all these more advanced uh, technologies to help identify like what's around the car on the road for autonomous driving, it's just going to use cameras. And it like justified it by saying like, well, you're a human, you just use eyes, so your car can just use cameras. Like, there's way more of them, right? Um, but like, there's tons of problems with that, that the documentary can explain. And basically, uh, it has legitimately resulted in some of these accidents, um, because like the software can like, in a theoretical sense, tell you what's around the car, but cameras are only, you know, as good as what they can see. Right. And they have issues with things like bridges, um, that, you know, these, these cars can, you know, interpret things as bridges, like tractor trailers that result in these huge problems. Um, and so it, it kind of just got me thinking about like how often I think we see in the software space, like people assume that the hardware is just going to catch up when that's like a really dangerous assumption in a lot of ways. And maybe something to talk with Mary about when you know, she's back in that, you know, you just can't have like runaway software solving these amazing challenges when, you know, the hardware people are not on board or haven't thought about that use of, of their devices. Yeah, it, it is interesting. It's like a lot of these big, I mean, you look at Google specifically, um, maybe Google and the, the, the Nest and the 5G side uh, go more towards this, but it's like these, these large companies that want to just push their um, like ag agenda, right? And they're not like worried about like, they're going to try to, we're going to put 5g out there because it's better for our phones for our policy or for our care our customers and we'll deal with the ramifications after the fact right a ask for forgiveness not permission right right Google, we're gonna the, the only way we're gonna be able to get these thermostats in is if they can siphon power and we'll, we'll you know we'll we'll try to figure that out on the the after they buy them right if they have issues yeah, or like the assumption that, you know, all the HVAC makers are just going to have to make designs that accommodate, you know, this siphoned power now um, because they become, you know, ubiquitous. And obviously that that's worked at times, right? Like I'm sure there are examples where the software companies have sort of forced hardware changes based on, I mean, Apple does that all the time, right? Like it's <laughs> more, more and more powerful updates until your phone can't handle it. Um, but uh, it, I think seeing it in different industries and play out in different ways, like shows almost how it could be just a, a dangerous practice in a lot of time, a lot of ways. Yeah. I will also share the, I have, I had similar issues with, with Nest and it was funny. I remember talking to the uh, electrician who I ended up calling to basically get help with, with setting it up and then realizing I had to do more work to actually install the nest. So ultimately I'm still, I just have two nests in a box somewhere. Um, but he was like, Oh yeah, they literally, you know, they just kind of pitch it as, um, you know, you watch their flashy video and it's like, you just follow our color coded guide, put the wires <laughs> in and it works magic. And he's like, it, do it doesn't actually right. That that's like the, the story they want to tell you. And then 
they just they try to sell you the unit and then once they do it, it it's kind of figured out from there <laughs> once it's once that unit is in your home they'll try to figure it out i wonder so. how many people have like legit upgraded their hvac units because they couldn't get their nest to work <laughs> yeah right now you're in for these you know 200 dollars each nest or whatever they are right. um yeah now i bought something that i'm supposed to put on my hvac unit to like give it a little more juice some like retrofitting you know the, the old i don't know but yeah um it is interesting it does it does it feels like not everyone moves together at the same speed and software has that you know facebook made famous the move fast and break things mantra which works great when you're just making software right like like SaaS, like pure software you know that right. doesn't really have to play with anything else um less great of a philosophy when maybe you're bringing it into the physical world or it's interfering with things in the physical world yeah i think mary said like her release cycles were like six months for their uh, surgical robot so like and that was like as fast as they could possibly move it right so uh good to see that they slowed down right um you know kind of <laughs> yeah. give some justification to uh a slower innovation on that side totally all right so to jump into the main body of the episode, we were kind of thinking about, you know, we started this podcast. When was actually the first episode released? It was it was in 2022. I would have to go check the date, but, you know, we'll say six or seven months ago. We also both started new jobs this year. And so we kind of wanted to do a bit of a, you know, look back. We both had a similar experience with starting at the same company um logic manager and then kind of really growing as pms over many years there and then we sort of branched out and got to have new new experiences and just kind of wanted to chat about you know some of the the fundamental things like the team structures and how kind of prioritization and customer interviews go uh, and then also you know see some questions pop up online related to these things so kind of mix that in so i think a bit of a, a grab bag episode but we really just wanted to catch up do like a, a bit of a you know you do a six-month check-in right at your uh <laughs> at your job so our, our six-month podcast are you giving me a performance review nick is that what i'm, yeah. out I'm in for here <laughs> I've, I've been looking at some other co-hosts. <laughs> Mary was pretty impressive. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think just to, just to get started, uh, I, one interesting thing was at my new job, one of the immediate things that stood out to me was how kind of the teams were were structured. And I know, Brendan, kind of at, at LogicMeter, I'd say, you know, we, we had scrum teams obviously developers qa with a pm lead and they were somewhat defined as to what that team would work on in like a month over month capacity but it felt like the back it was very fluid right we sort of had this like joint backlog and then some teams got domain knowledge over time in different areas but it was still pretty shared and uh, at High Marley, they use a structure that they call value streams, which are very similar in that they're, you know, that independent operating agile team, but they're pretty clearly denoted as like, this is the, uh, you know, coaching team and they're going to be working, they're going to be focusing on um, insights and uh, analytics and those, those type of things. And it acts as a form of, I guess I would call it 
pre-prioritization where you're sort of already saying like, hey, we're taking 20% of our product development resources and they're, they're you know, pre-prioritized to focus on this subset of things. And then they can prioritize within that what they want to work on. But like as a company, we're making that choice to put X percent there, like maybe more explicitly than I've seen I've seen done. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I think like it, I, I don't know. I was, it's tough because I think in like that ideal world, you could imagine like you could perfectly have this one backlog and perfectly prioritize everything against each other. But it, you know, having tried to do that, that does feel really tough. And sometimes it feels like you're comparing apples and oranges together. And maybe this structure helps with that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I can can speak to it from a little bit of a different angle because, like at Logic Manager, I was effectively responsible for how we we thought about um, team structure a little bit, at least amongst the uh, how our product teams were allocated. And I think the way that I tried to think about it was sort of you're right. We didn't have much of a structure as far as we all dealt with the same backlog and we all sort of pulled initiatives um, from a, a total stack ranking and we went to the top and then we just sort of, you know, hashed it out from there. You know, this team will take this initiative, initiative number two on the list, the other team is going to take it. And I did always feel that that was partially a factor of our size. And I know High Marley and Logic Manager are actually relatively similar sized. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, I think, to me that it's not so much a function of size. Like you can definitely do it differently. Um, I think I would have started to think about it diff like the, the risk of starting to come up with value streams is that you're basically making some degree of prioritization decision on your allocation of resources, right? If totally. you put uh, 75 percent on value stream one and 25 percent on value stream two you are implicitly saying that like there's more value coming out of value stream one even if value stream two has the best idea that the company's ever come up with and like it has to get done like it could be the first thing on their list but it's going to get done at a quarter or a third of the speed and mm -hmm. you know you're basically implicitly not valuing it as much and I think from from the logic manager standpoint, part of it was a you know company strategy and what we were trying to do. There was never as clearly defined a, uh, a kind of a prioritization at that level where we wanted to say, okay, you know, this part of the app or this functionality is worth more to logic manager than this other part, and so it's going to get more resources. Um, and therefore, we basically said, okay, the best ideas we can come up with as a company and a product team and a, an application, we're going to allocate between the the resources that we have. And we're not going to worry about which team takes what other than, you know, naturally developing the specialty. Um, but I, you know, I could totally see that changing if the strategy changes or if there was a very clear, you know, grouping of customers that were going to ultimately like make the company more money. You know, if you can, if you can make the decisions about which value streams drive the revenue and are, are going to be the way forward uh, more clearly and set those bets, then I would have had no problem, you know, allocating the teams a little bit more clearly to a specific aspect of the product. Yeah. And I, I think one, one thing you brought up of like the, the changing priority is that one thing we definitely, I think the, well, let me back up. I think the value streams have changed some amount every quarter I've been there. You know, uh, this is now, we just finished our third 
quarter planning this week actually um and one thing i remember joining and them saying is these are fluid don't get attached to like you know it, it, these will change as the needs of the the company change right like i joined to basically kind of at the time start a new value stream because there was no one really focused on org management getting users in and out of the system creating org hierarchy for reporting needs like those type of things and so they're like okay we're gonna start a value stream there but like that's not gonna live forever right like we don't forever need to put x resources towards that but right now it's an acute problem and we think it will be for the next few quarters so we're going to stand this up and then the second it doesn't make sense anymore we're going to take those and move them to you know the next most important thing for the company at that like higher level um yeah and i, I will yeah. i will add that i think like the value stream team allocation is also probably a good way to make sure that like uh and and um the CEO and logic manager would talk about this too, right? About always having like a percentage of development that he wanted allocated to sort of like long shot bets. And I think that's a, mm -hmm. a, a fair use of, I think the, the value stream concept you're talking about as well, right? Because, totally. um, you know, if you're always looking at what your top priorities are, I think sometimes there's a tendency to deprioritize the long shots, right? The ones that have a, you know, a 5% chance of making you a billion dollar company um, but are definitely worth doing because you're not close to a billion dollar company yet and you, you need to be investing in those. Um, and unless you define a team and say, hey, you're responsible for these, nobody takes those bets and you know the company stays pretty conservative in, in ultimately how it is uh, allocating resources. And so I think value streams do are, are a way of doing that as well, um, mm. if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. It's like if, if you say, hey, we want to spend 10, 5, 10% of our resources on long shot bets, sometimes that can be tough to be like, okay, so I, we have three teams. So that's going to be, you know, 30% of one team is 5% of the overall thing, right? Instead of just saying, hey, this PM and these two developers, you're, you're the 5%, you're the 10%. You're the you're, you're building the long shot bets and you're just in a bubble and, and no one is competing for that resource. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the team structure at, uh, at, at Viva, I think definitely surprised me a little bit in, in one of the things that obviously we had, and, and maybe it's a little bit different at high Marley. You can, you can comment on that is, um, mm. you know, we had always thought about sort of the complementary aspects of our application, right? Like how could the development work that one team did, um, how could it apply across the application? And part of that was our resources, right? We were, um, you know, a small growing business and we wanted to compete with organizations that had much more resources than us. So we wanted to be really intelligent so that if, if one area of the application worked on workflows, we were going to make that work for all areas of the application, right? Or as many as, as feasible. And um, so there's always sort of that thinking about, okay, where is their overlap? Where are their efficiencies between the parts of our, our product offering that could work together? Um, even at the expense of maybe like a purpose-made aspect of the mm -hmm. product or something that was purpose-built. And um, Viva has a concept that they call uh, autonomy over alignment. And you can see it in some of their, um, 
you know, of their marketing, uh, they actually advertise it as, you know, like a selling point for how they recruit talent. And it basically is that as they think of new products and new product lines, um, they launch them in sort of autonomous units. And mm. the idea behind it is they, they want them to develop it, uh, have their own DevOps team, have their own tech stack, you know, have their own, um, you know, releases and, and sprints. And they basically don't want you to ever slow down because you're worried about, you know, does another part of the app do this? Or do we need to integrate with another part of the application if that's not going to ultimately like make your product in immediately better or there's not an immediate payoff for it? They would rather you be sort of fully autonomous, even if that results in, you know, doing things inconsistently from ways that other product lines are functioning. And sort of the bet is that like, you know, it allows product teams to be at their best and to be solely dedicated to the particular challenges that they're solving. And then naturally they, you know, only the strong survive, right? The ones that are doing a really great job solving those problems, those products will grow and ultimately the integrations will come, you know, from those like strongest product lines. Um, but I thought it was really interesting to see such a big company operate like this um, because you hear so much about you know, the bureaucracies of like an Oracle or these like large tech companies, yeah. right. That do have these problems. And, you know, from being on the inside, like I expected there to be some of that, but there really isn't like these, these autonomous units are truly autonomous and you might meet to talk about like, okay, our apps overlap in this area. How are we going to hash that out? But you know, those conversations are much rarer than if the company had a policy of like integration and, uh, a single app feel between all of its products. That's just not a priority. Um, and, you know, largely to, to Viva's credit and success, right? Like it's obviously a, a, a hugely successful business as a large mm -hmm. public company. Um, so I thought that was something that really surprised me, but also was a way of operating that I didn't realize scaled in the way that it has at Viva. Um, one quick question. So at Viva is uh, from the application side, when you sell multiple products, are they under one umbrella or is it more like you're launching individual, like, am I entering into one application and accessing all these different things, you know, from within that same portal? Or is it more like, I don't know if this is a great example, but like, uh, okay, Microsoft makes Excel and PowerPoint and Word, but I'm launching them individually. I know very much which I'm in. I am in a Word document. I, you know what I'm trying to say? How, how does that work at Viva? Yeah, it's a good question. And I will say their product line is so extensive that the six months I've been there are not <laughs> enough to make me an expert sure. on what every aspect of their product does. Um, but I do think like to a degree, yes, you, you're purchasing discrete, unique products to solve mm. discrete, unique challenges that you have, right? Sort of a best of breed type model. Um, and again, I do think that there are, uh, when it makes a lot of sense, right? And once you've proven out the concept and you've this determine the value. I do think there are more opportunities for the more mature products in their spectrum that have captured large market share to have some of that integration that, um, you know, I'm sure customers would ideally be looking for. And it, I do think it also results in some challenges. Like we know that people have login fatigue in, in certain segments of industries mm -hmm. that we serve where they do feel like they're logging into a lot of apps and this autonomy over alignment isn't necessarily the best aligned with addressing that challenge. Um, but you know, again, I do think there's a whole huge amount of freedom uh, that it does empower teams to go out and solve these challenges that, you know, make it 
really rewarding for developers and PMs, you know, to not have to worry about stepping on other teams' toes. Yeah. Another thread I wanted to pull on there was you kind of mentioned how um, when we were working at Logic Manager, we focused a lot on consistency and reusability across the application. And one thing I realized was we, Logic Manager was, you know, a horizontal player in the sense that they weren't focused on a, one industry. You know, it wasn't risk management for financial institutions, although we had a lot of them. It wasn't, you know, just risk management in the vendor space for all, right? It was, it was sort of, you know, risk management across your business, across a lot of industries. And now we're both at more vertical players, right? Like where, uh, you know, Hi Marley is a, a communication platform for insurance, right? And, and Viva's focused on, on healthcare specifically. Um, and so I, I, it is interesting moving from that where, you know, we were building a lot of features, like you mentioned the workflow where we would build it and we'd be keeping in mind like, okay, how would this work for someone doing a policy review? And also how would this work for someone reviewing a vendor? And also, you know, like you kind of thinking all these things and now just being like, how can I make the best possible messaging experience for an insurance adjuster messaging a policy hold? Like just this very explicit thing. And I'm sure you see the same thing on your side. So that's been interesting. I think something I've had to maybe shake a little bit is, you know, I, I feel like my instinct coming from my last role was to make everything generic, like a one size fits all approach. And now it's interesting to try to be making things like extremely specific to, to one need, one persona, um, being in more like a vertical space, vertical uh, software. Yeah, I definitely think there's an element of like, as a PM, adapting your mindset to like the company mission and like the company mm. strategy that, you know, I had to sort of shake off some of the, the uh, I think logic manager strategy aspects of my mindset. Cause you're right. I definitely think, you know, the, the tool and the, the approach at our, uh, at logic manager was much more of a, uh, we were developing a Swiss army knife, right? It was a bunch of tools mm -hmm. and how you use those tools, um, dependent on your use case and, and, you know, what person you are, right. You bring out the knife and you could use it, uh, to, you know, fillet a fish, or you could use it to wood carve <laughs> depending on who you were, uh, and who, what an analogy. yeah. And, and, uh, definitely it's very different now where, uh, you know, you're never taking that step back and you're not being generic. And actually, I think that's almost the antithesis of Viva's approach, right? Viva's basically got started saying like, what if there was a Salesforce, but specific to life sciences? And I think they've proven mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that that can be a hugely successful business model if you develop a, you know, what people think of as sort of a generic tool, but you you really are targeted in, in who it's developed for, right? You really are targeted about who your persona is effectively, um, and how much, how much that will often, you know, help you uh, obtain a market share. Um, you know, I think about how many challenges we we had at Logic Manager with making people feel like they were at home in the product, and mm -hmm. um, how freeing it is to be be able to say like, no, let's let's use the industry terminology of like this yeah. group, <laughs> um, because you know we know exactly who the customer is, and it looks very homogenous throughout all of the, the people using our product. 
uh, the the send a task, send a profile <laughs> task, right? You know, and you always wanted if you're a vendor, you know, send uh, you know a security review or a questionnaire or something, right? Um, but just getting to use those more specific words. And and I I will say on the flip side, like again, it's not that one way is better or worse than the other, right? Like Salesforce. Totally is basically oh, yeah. such a good tool set that they've turned their entire application into a development platform that can be used to mm -hmm. build products for any other industry. Like that is the, that is, and they're one of the most successful SaaS companies in the world. So like, again, it's not that one is better than the other. It's just that there are two totally different mindsets and 100%. two different ways to dominate a market. hundred percent. And it's interesting, you know, we compete a lot against, um, the horizontal players, right? Like, so we, it's funny being on the other side of that now, and we go into these insurance, um, companies and we get put against these, uh, horizontal communication play players. And it's trying to fight like, okay, why are the very specific things you've developed for the insurance industry? a better fit than this, um, you know, especially as a startup, than this company who's been around for a while is maybe much more proven. Sure, they don't look exactly, they don't have, they don't use all the terminology I want, but maybe they have this track record that we don't have as a very new company. Um, and it's just interesting being on, on the other side of that and, and how you have to think about it and, and position yourself. Yeah, I definitely think from the standpoint of you know, like what the limiting factor is, like, obviously, like, generally, if you're a horizontal platform, you know, maybe your addressable market is a lot bigger. And so you don't have to be as successful in like converting, uh, converting them. Um, I do think as like a PM, though, there's a, uh, a certain focus that you get when you are targeting like a specific vertical that is makes it easier, honestly, like, I think, Totally. You know, I, I guess if I was like giving advice to like a PM looking to break into an industry, like a company that is serving a vertical that you've been in and that you mm -hmm. can speak to, like is going to be an easier transition than one that does have a lot of like a horizontal play or is more of a platform play um, just because of, of, you know, at Logic Manager, I used to tell people when they were coming on board that you were going to develop knowledge that was like an inch deep and a mile wide, because that was sort of the only approach that you could take to have this mm -hmm. platform that served, you know, healthcare and government and financial services and technology. Um, like it was, it was, you know, you had to be process oriented. Whereas, like I, I think in the vertical space, like it's been much easier for me to dive into Viva and say, like, I'm going to learn everything I can about clinical researchers and pharmaceutical companies and like. You know, it's there's still a ton there to learn, no doubt. But uh, it's comforting knowing that I'm always in the space that our customers are in, and like I'm just getting more and more familiar with it, rather than trying to make sure I pick up the right bit of knowledge from all these different industries. Mm -hmm. So, at, do you have access to? This is another thing I want to talk about, like subject matter experts. At like, I, I don't, you know, do you have people at Viva who came from the healthcare space, maybe specifically, uh, and act as like a an advisor SME role. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't want to say I'm a necessarily a rarity as somebody who like didn't have a huge background in like healthcare pharmaceuticals. And obviously we, we serve that, that sector as well at logic mm -hmm. manager. Um, but there absolutely are, um, people that have come out of the life sciences space that want to get into technology. I've actually found that like, uh, the nursing profession, like you, you find, uh, nurses everywhere and uh, like 
a lot of people go from, I think, being like a, you know, frontline bedside nurse for a few years and decide that's not for them. And then either the life sciences clinical trial space is a great place for them to jump to. And then some of them go a step further and actually become technologists, uh, which I had no idea that like that was a career path that nurses could take. Yeah. It, it seems to be super common. Um, but yeah, just to get back to your point, uh, Viva is chock full of subject matter experts um, amongst the leadership level and then also people at like the frontline customer support level. Um, so we do uh, have a ton of internal customers that can tell us exactly what the external customers are thinking because they've been there and they've been yes. used. And it's a huge, it's a huge benefit as I'm, I'm sure you can attest. A hundred percent. I thought that was something I really liked at Hi Marley is when I joined, you know, one of the first things I did was get set up with an SME, you know, people that were hired out of um, the insurance space, you know, had worked in there for 15, 20 years in, in, in insurance and just having access to that person, um, which is obviously easier to staff up if you're in a vertical, right? Like, like just insurance. Um, was was so valuable because I remember, you know, it used to be like trying to find customer interviews to do a lot of that or just Googling to do a lot of that foundational knowledge gain, right? Like just, you know, trying to learn more about a given space and you are limited to how much you can do on your own. And so just having that person there to quickly bounce ideas off of and, you know, nothing will ever replace talking to the customer, right? But these people came from the the space the customer is in and can act as a really quick feedback loop to or just to really teach you you know they had like an insurance 101 course when i joined it turns out i pay a lot of money for insurance and didn't know a lot about it <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i guess i'm utilizing it now but even just that was was cool um so i i found that that really really helpful um and is something i would probably like ask about in you know, if I ever went on to another position at another company, like, do you, do you have subject matter experts here? Like, how do you get that industry knowledge? Cause I've found it just super, super valuable. Do you worry at all that there's like a manner of, um, like group think or, um, you know, things that people that have been in the same industry for their entire career, just like presume are unsolvable problems or just the way things are, or, you know, are kind of locked into a common way of thinking where, you know, there might be a benefit to um, abstracting the problem out of the insurance sector again to think about it, you know, how mm -hmm. other, other ways of solving an issue? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I would almost maybe, maybe I take it a different direction and say, I, I wonder if you could fear that there was a group think of people who worked in insurance and were then willing to join an insurance software company. Like maybe that is a subset of, uh, you know, people that are more like early adopters and maybe not representative of everyone in insurance or a given space. Right. Cause they were, you know, they had, they, they wanted to go solve the problem. So they went somewhere that was solving the problem. They went to a software company and, you know, maybe that makes them a more, you know, have a higher risk tolerance than your average, uh, you know, in, in manager at an insurance company or something like that. Um, I don't know. Did that, did that answer the question? Did that kind of, yeah, I, I think it does the, the, um, like, I think the concept that I do think applies and, you know, a benefit of having people who 
don't come from um, your your industry to like bounce ideas off of is that I do think that there is an element of like people that are all brought up in in one industry or spend a lot of time in the same industry like come to accept that you know certain things are big challenges and either can't be overcome or um, that's just the way things are and and don't necessarily challenge that they have to continue to be that way um, and there can be you know, a lot of times when you're trying to bring case studies to to individuals uh, and and sort of say, hey, like, you know, this is a this is something that we think could work, or like this works for this one company but not the other. They have such an intimate knowledge of it that they can like kind of call out exceptions or why this insurance company is different mm-hmm. than this other insurance company, and that's why it's not going to work there. Um, and so they can like basically they know the problem with such a degree of depth that they can call out both sides of the issue in such granularity that it, there's almost a, a paralysis that occurs because they they just can't take that step back and abstract in the way that somebody that's not so intimately familiar with the challenges, right? That's thinking about it with a whole different uh, par- paradigm yeah. of, of sort of the issue. Yeah, yeah. You just, you just need like an idiot like me to be like, uh, this will work, right? Like, you know, like, I, I don't know why it wouldn't. Um, I do think it is an interesting balance, I will say. And, you know, there's, I come from the software side. I want to push things out every day as fast as possible, right? Like, get it out there, fail fast, iterate. And we are, I'm not saying we're, I, I think High Miley is good at that, but I, you do sense that the people who come from maybe a more insurance background are, you know, maybe do more, you know, emphasize more upfront due diligence, taking things maybe a touch, like a touch slower or something like that. So it has been an interesting balance where I think as a company, we meet in the middle, you know, um, we release, you know, average every four to six weeks or something like that. So it's not like we're on some CICD path, but I do, it has been funny where, you know, I think you see the people who come from like a software background be like, we got to, you know, we got to go faster. And, you know, people who are from the insurance background are maybe more, uh, more cautious in, in some regards, not to paint with a broad brush, but just generally speaking. So. Yeah. It's definitely, uh, speaking- I mean, I, I think there's a balance, right? Like, uh, and it's probably harder to achieve at, at much smaller companies than it is at, at companies where there's thousands of people whose knowledge you can pull from. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it works both ways. So speaking of releases and planning them out, road mapping or talking about the sort of what, what you're going to be building the next one, three, six, 12 months. I'd be interested in what your experience has been like, Brendan, maybe compared to how we did it previously at logic manager. Man, that's probably one of the areas where there's been the most difference. And, and the, um, I think the thing to keep in mind is like, for as much as we thought of like logic manager as a, a startup, um, to, uh, you're in it now. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're like logic manager when it, when it joined, uh, when I joined it, uh, we had, I think like 15 customers or so. Um, mm-hmm. but there were hundreds by the time I was leaving, uh, and 15 customers, you know, obviously it doesn't sound like a lot compared to hundreds. Um, but the, you know, I'm very much in a startup within Viva where we are in what they call the early adopter phase, which means sometimes we have one customer who's the early adopter of one aspect of the product. And other times we really don't have any that are, uh, are currently using, you know, the products that we're developing. 
Um, and so uh, there's a degree of like basically constant pivoting and feeling things out. And so like a long-term roadmap right now is such a, like I think everybody would agree that if we were to look out farther than the next three months that we'd be kidding ourselves with some of the things that we're working yeah. on. Like we have ideas, we have problems that we're aware of and things that we think fall under the umbrella of sort of this uh, concept of uh, uh, that we are, are chasing. Um, but to, to roadmap it, would basically be a futile exercise. There'd be no, you know, we we have so much iterating and learning to do in what we build this month um, that a longer term roadmap just doesn't make any sense because we're we're gonna overhaul it with what we learn in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, ro ro roadmap month one, build product one. Roadmap month two, <laughs> product two? Question mark? Product one, like, yeah. build product two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is an interesting balance for like how quickly you can iterate. And I agree. I, I, it seems like something at someone at your stage, you know, where you right, have like one or zero customers for a given initiative, right? Like, yeah, it's hard to roadmap, right? You're probably, your roadmap's probably, what does this customer want, right? Like, let's, you know, let's work with them. Um, and I feel like at Logic Manager, we were in, I felt like, not to say we ro didn't roadmap out, but like we really locked stuff in. I would, I feel like more on like the monthly basis, I would say. Like if you were like, we're locking this in, like it would have to take a big movement to change something in the next four weeks. And then at High Marley, it's, it's, I think there's sort of like three scales here. We do it quarterly. Um, and we, we actually just finished it up. We kind of call it PI planning. It's very fun, sometimes lightly stressful, uh, <laughs> where you really try to plan out the next three months of the of what your value stream is going to build, and you present it to the company, and there's some back and forth. And it's it's a, just an interesting balance because three months is there's obviously not a shortage of things. You know, we have years of things we could build, but three months feels like right at that point where it's like. We might, are we are we projecting too far into the future or sometimes you have to wait or sometimes I kind of put like a a spacer in like the last sprint like I'm gonna we're gonna release this thing in sprint one and I'm gonna learn something and I just want to put a little buffer here in sprint five to you know um, address it if we if we learn something uh, and uh, so that part's tricky the part I really do like is it stops constant disruption in in a positive way where once this is like locked in it's sort of there's an artifact that's you know formalized and saved if there needs to be a significant deviation to that it's not like we swapped one user story out or something but like a significant deviation like we we're building this feature and we are no longer because of this that gets like elevated to you know a manager leadership level and it has to get approval so i think it stops a lot of the like noise that you feel sometimes as a PM where you're like kind of getting all these inputs on a daily basis and it lets you say like hey this is the PI plan that got approved by the company and we can definitely talk about swapping something but that's a bigger discussion outside of just just us you know yeah and I, I think too I mean um, one of the common challenges that I've heard from PMs and I've read about that PMs have like what's one of the most common complaints you probably see on like sites like Reddit or PM forums is that um, people feel like there's like a like a whiplash effect often right mm -hmm. that there's like 
you know, shifting priorities and changes in priorities that aren't explained to them and come from management and that are, you know, really frustrating to deal with. And I do think there's an element of like longer term roadmaps that provide a comfort or like a safety in a, in a PM chasing that. So like, you know, even a, a logic manager, while the roadmap might've been a little bit more shifting, I do feel like the problems that we solved tended to be like two to three month challenges, right? That somebody would get to really mm -hmm. dig in we wouldn't stay on it longer than that because we want to measure how whether whether we got any closer to solving it, uh, and we pivot to something else. But you know, I think there was always like a, a feedback loop, right? It was long enough to have a really material impact on something and learn from it. And I think the roadmap you're describing does does the same way. Um, and it mm -hmm. can be, and I, I, even being in a position now where there is a lot of pivoting, it can definitely be like an uncomfortable experience, right? I can definitely see yeah. how some PMs would be really uncomfortable with the degree to which there are, are pivots. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think when you are in a really nascent product and especially when you're at a large company that has the liberty, frankly, and the, the ability to like make a lot of different bets and, you know, basically have this kind of skunk works style, uh, approach where you're just going to be experimenting and we're going to see what happens. And, you know, we're going to run with ideas and try to learn as quickly as we can. Like it's a totally different mindset and you're going to, you're going to turn away from ideas that, you know, you felt like you could have learned more from, uh, so that, cause there might be newer ideas that, you know, you haven't learned anything about yet. And so you're just looking for that little bit of additional piece of information. Um, and like, it is a totally different mindset. It's one that requires, I think, almost a level of detachment from everything you're, you're, you know, you, you can't get too attached with one challenge, one solution, one problem, because you've got to be able to focus on the next one tomorrow. Um, but it's also an environment where you get to learn a ton. Uh, you get to pick up a ton of different pieces of knowledge, you know, the technologies that you are dealing with change. Uh, and then obviously like there's the freedom to go super fast because your learning curve is mm -hmm. always super steep. Like you're never plateauing from a learning curve standpoint. So, um, you know, I do think it's, it's different, but also one for PMs probably to think about as they are, um, you know, thinking about the roles that they want to take and what type of a function they want to jump into. I think there's probably PMs that thrive in different environments. Definitely. I, I also realized we said like, oh, a value stream that's just focused on bets. Like we're going to take a, a small percentage of our resources and dedicate that. It's you, right? Yeah. Like you're that, that. you're that value stream of Viva. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you are the example of that, right? Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Um, and uh, again, it's, it's, it, it was funny going from a small company to a bigger company, but almost taking like a step back in like the, number of customers and like the 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 length of the roadmap and things like that like that being different like that was totally against my expectations but it also makes sense and i think it's also one of the reasons why you know viva is a successful company is that they've you know incorporated these kinds of ideas from like the startup mindset into you know a much larger business now granted i'm not i'm not working on the flagship product right it might look totally different there um but i think it was it was really interesting to see that you know, they have even more of an innovator's mindset than we had at Logic Manager, uh, you know, 100 person company. Yeah. Um, the autonomy over alignment, right? There you go. That's uh, it. I, on, the, on the customer interview side, I will say that is something that I had to adjust to as well. And I'm sure you had to just maybe the amount of customers giving you some piece of feedback or validation before you take action. Like you said, Logic Manager at the time had 
you know, hundreds of, of customers when we were there. So it's pretty easy to kind of throw something out there and get, I don't know, 10, at least 10, maybe 20 customers to give you some amount of feedback on it. If it was just like a quick design, even more with, you know, asynchronous methods such as Maze for running like prototypes, you know, we got, I think there was what, 70 was like our most used maze or something like that um and and just getting comfortable this has been a, a challenge for me just getting comfortable with just a, less validation right when you're in a smaller space or have less customers you just have to be willing to say hey we have three people that are saying this is a good good idea and we got to make that make that bet and and kind of try to try to see if it pays off so I, i'm someone who likes to collect a lot of customer <laughs> feedback a lot of validation and that's been that's been an adjustment i'm sure obviously for you at such a nascent product that's even even more drastic yeah i mean chasing early adopters is all about that right it's finding a customer who you're going to make a bet on that says like hey this person's forward thinking and if we make them successful we're going to count on there being hundreds more like them and that's you know that's ultimately the bet um, that, that that type of approach makes. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I just looked. This is already our longest episode <laughs> uh, today. I feel like I could talk about like 20 more things, but I, I feel like we've had a pact that we don't go over an hour, you know, and we've kept it under. So in these final minutes, was there anything else that we didn't chat about that you wanted to to bring up? No, good luck naming this episode, Nick. I'm curious what you come up oh. with. You're, you're the expert namer, so I'm uh, oh, I'm excited no. for this one. <laughs> That's such, oh man, you really set me up. <laughs> I, I was literally just gonna write like the six month check it or something, but now I really have to think about it. Yep. All right, well, I'll, before we close, Brendan, I, I have to say the, the results are in on LinkedIn from our prioritization draft. You know what, I, congratulations. <laughs> you were the one that that received the most votes. People like blog-driven prioritization, <laughs> whatever your third pick was. <laughs> so good for them. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but yes, any, would you like to give your, your very brief victory speech here? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna really thank the MVP stack ranking it carried you it go. you can use it use it in every circumstance it's an all-time blunder by me people are going to talk about that <laughs> I, I, for, for a long you, time. I appreciate your loyalty to the the cause that's that's great to be admired <laughs> nick but uh it 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 really came back to bite you here it it did you know i pandered to high marley's <laughs> method and didn't, didn't get me anywhere no. uh awesome well brendan as always thank you very much Please, if you're listening, you know, when we post this on LinkedIn, leave some feedback there, message us directly. We also have an email address, prodsquadcast at gmail.com. So if you just want to send us some feedback, that would be greatly appreciated. Five stars, like, all that jazz on all the platforms. And until next time, squad out. Thanks, everybody. Take care.